Let's bow in prayer one more time. Lord, we've already prayed today that you would open up your word to us, that we might have eyes to see wonderful things in it. We pray again that you would help us to find a clear understanding of what it means to deal with you on the basis of grace and how that grace really begins to take hold in our hearts and what we should be looking for, Lord, in our hearts to see if we really understand and have completely uh, been changed by your grace. And so we pray, Lord, your word today would bring forth that fruit in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you make your way in your Bibles to Nehemiah, let me just again remind you of just a wonderful, wonderful truth. Nehemiah is not just about a book that has a wall that's being rebuilt. It's about a people who are being rebuilt in their faith and their understanding of God. And so we want to, again, affirm what we've seen the last previous weeks in our study of Nehemiah, that God is a forgiving, gracious, compassionate God. And if God treated us like we deserved, we would be crushed under a heavy weight of just judgment. Apart from God's grace, sinners are left with no hope and no remedy for our problem. But God's grace clearly is a precious, precious, priceless treasure. And the more you understand your need of God's grace, the more you understand what a great treasure God's grace truly is. Now that leads me to ask this morning, as we've taken some time now in the book of Nehemiah to look at the acknowledgement of the people as they came and admitted their failings, they began to celebrate God's grace, His faithfulness to forgive them. And uh, now we're going to ask the question, what is an appropriate response to God's grace? Well, one thing I could say is if we truly grasp the wonder of God's grace and the unmerited favor we receive from Him, we're certainly going to reject any kind of thoughts of boasting about ourselves, of somehow bragging about the favor that we have received from God. I came across this helpful quote about grace. In this, it says this, Grace is unconditional acceptance granted to undeserving persons by an unobligated giver. So there's no sense of any kind of boasting about what you deserve when it comes to grace. Not at all. Now there's another concern I have, though, about maybe some people become proud and have the wrong response to grace, there are other people who may cheapen God's grace. And this is a real problem. They cheapen God's grace by suggesting that because God deals with us in grace, therefore obedience to Christ and any kind of self-denial are really not required of true believers. Now I'm curious, how many of you have ever heard of Diedrich Bonhoeffer? Just curious. Many of you have. Okay. Uh, he was a German theologian uh, who lived in the 1930s, and, and uh, he was one of a number of Germans who made specific plans to try to uh, bring Adolf Hitler's life to an end quicker than it happened otherwise. And he and several other people were involved actually in a plot uh, and, and the plot almost worked. Uh, there was a bomb that was put into a particular uh, uh, conference center, if you will, a room in which uh, Hitler was there, along with many of his other 
uh, leaders, and the bomb did go off. But unfortunately, the table, because of the way it was constructed, uh, uh, kept it from having its full effect, and therefore, uh, those who were involved in this plot became known, including Bonhoeffer and several others, and Bonhoeffer was put into a prison camp, and uh, eventually his life was taken. He was killed as a martyr, a follower of Christ. Anyway, he came up in 1937, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, he came up with the phrase, cheap grace. He was concerned about what he saw going on in various churches was this idea, the teaching that was uh, talking about or cheapening grace from God. And he defined cheap grace like this. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It is baptism without church discipline. It is communion without confession. Cheap grace, he said, is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, and grace without Jesus Christ. So some people then cheapen grace by promoting what would be called the benefits of Christianity without any, in any effort of, uh, they, while omitting, they, benefit, they talk about the benefits of Christianity while omitting any kind of the costs involved in following Jesus Christ. And so in our study of Nehemiah, We've noticed in the last uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9 that the children of Israel, they responded to this record of God being so gracious to his people over many dealings, over many times, over many generations, and how they were just humbly amazed by that, that God would be so willing to forgive and so willing to forbear those people, that they responded by acknowledging and admitting their own failings and their own sin, their own repentance of the fact that they have clearly done wrong and, and how they needed God's help. and they, need, they themselves needed God's forgiveness and grace as they faced various trials and hardships. That was chapter 9. Now those are all very good and commendable responses to make in light of God's grace shown to them. But I've got a question that came to me as I was thinking through this passage this past week, and these are the questions that came to my mind. How do we know if these people or anybody in general how do we know if they are only superficially concerned about what it means to offend God? What if they just say the words and they say, yeah, I am sorry about my sin, but it's all just, just superficial concern. How do we know that, that people who offer words of repentance are truly sincere? Have you ever had someone that has committed something wrong against you and they've come back and they said, oh, I'm sorry about that. And you get the sense that the reason they said they were sorry is because they got caught that didn't really seem to jive with a sense of real true sorrow over what they did. and So I asked the question, how do we know these people here in this text, or other people in general, can actually place a high value on God's grace, and then at some point go on with their life, and it somehow doesn't make any difference in how they conduct themselves, and they just merely say, well, God's going to accept me however I live, so therefore I'm relying on His grace, and so I'm not going to get really caught up on uh, any kind of getting worked up about sin or doing things wrong that offend other people. Well, I think this chapter 10 is going to help us a lot in understanding that, chapter 10 of Nehemiah, because I think we're going to find here that the true evidence of repentance, the evidence of true repentance is the outward fruit of a changed heart and a changed life.
Not just merely regret, not just merely remorse, having feelings of remorse. Many people can have regret and remorse. That's, that's something that is commonly expressed. But evidence of true repentance is the outward fruit of a changed heart and a changed life at turning as we turn away from the sin that we deeply mourn and regret. You say, well, how do you know this? Well, the last Old Testament prophet in Scripture, right before Jesus came, was John the Baptist. And the John the Baptist, his message as he started off his ministry was repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he went on to say, bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. In other words, make sure the repentance that you are uh, preparing to respond to this idea of grace and to the Savior who's coming, your Messiah, make sure that repentance is being manifested by how you live and how you respond, how you move forward in terms of showing that your heart truly has had a change in how it views sin. So in our text this morning, I'd like us to look then for three outward indicators in the lives of these people that their repentant hearts truly were gripped by God's grace and that their repentance showed a sense of sincerity and, and uh, genuineness. So the first one is, uh, beginning in verse 9, uh, sorry, chapter 9, verse 38, uh, the people say, Now because of all this, we're making an agreement in writing, and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Now on the sealed document, chapter 10, verse 1, were the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Haaliah, and Zedekiah, and on down he goes, 27 verses of names. And, uh, and he says, now the rest of the people and the priests, the Levites, verse 28, eight gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, and all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with the kinsmen, their nobles, they're taking them on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and observe all the commandments of God our Lord and His ordinances and His statutes. Now what I'd like to just to suggest to you is what's going on here in this text, just in terms of your outline there, is that we see a personal public identification with God's covenant. These people are making it very clear that they themselves personally are identifying themselves with the covenant of God. And of course the covenant at that time was the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God made with his people through Moses at the time of the Exodus. Here's Nehemiah and the citizens of this city, Jerusalem. They've had time to review God's gracious dealings with them and his people since the time of Abraham. And so we've had all time to review that chapter eight. But one thing became clear as they went through all this history again, that the people and their predecessors and that they themselves had failed Boy, had they miserably failed, not once, not twice, but they'd failed many, many, many times to keep the covenant that God made with his people, the Jews. And they, God had delivered them from Egypt, and God had redeemed them as his people. He had showed them saving grace, taking them out of Egypt. And if you'll notice in chapter 19 of Exodus, God calls them, you are my own possession among all the peoples. You people are those who belong to me. I've redeemed you. He even calls them a holy nation. 
In other words, they've been set apart and they belong to God, exclusively to Him. And they were to be His representatives. They were to be a people who agreed to these prohibitions and these various imperatives, commands. And along with that were these blessings and curses that they agreed to also, knowing that whether or not they kept the law, these things would then play out before them. So now in chapter 10, with this a sense of a profound sense of appreciation that God's patient love for them, despite the fact that they had, again, failed to abide by the various tenets of the Mosaic Covenant, Nehemiah and all the leaders in verse 28, and even all the rest of the people recommitted themselves as recipients of God's grace to submit to the laws and commands of God. Verse 29. So they signed the document. And I'm sure the document was rather lengthy with all these names on there. And then some names, I think, were a summary of everybody. I don't think they took, and took the time to have every single name, but it, it, was sim, it was at least to be representative of all of the people there that they've all now said, we're now going to show our allegiance to our God. It, this signing made it clear who was in and who's out. Who is the followers of the covenant? Who are the people of God? And who are those who are not? The names were left off. They're not on that list. Now, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to bring it over into our context. That was their situation with the Mosaic Law. What's our context here with the New Covenant? Well, Jesus dies on a cross. He's raised again three days later from the dead. And he ratifies, in so doing, a new covenant, which is described and predicted in Jeremiah 31. If you got your Bible, let's look over to Jeremiah 31, verse 31. That's an easy thing to remember. New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31. That should be the association with that kind of mental file. And on page 942 in your pew Bible, and let's look at this. This is really quite an important uh, description of how it's going to change now. Instead of having a law that's written in stone, God's going to write his law on the hearts of his people through the Holy Spirit, giving this a, a greater understanding of his word. 3131 of Jeremiah. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the Mosaic covenant. Uh, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they shall not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. And look at this. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. That's grace. That's what Christ has come, and that's what he provided in his offering himself as the ultimate Lamb of God, for those of us who desperately need a substitute. And so here, the only way to partake of these benefits of this covenant is not for us to go and, and, and give something to God or somehow keep all the different regulations, but the way to take in the benefits of this covenant of grace is to repent of our sins and to trust and transfer our trust to Jesus Christ and Him alone. In the new covenant, we are, by nature, outsiders. But by faith, we are granted this generous privilege of now being adopted as children of God. And in, in, in addition to that, we're also credited 
with the righteousness of Jesus Christ by way of imputation. The one who perfectly kept the law, his record is now put on our record. And that's the way God views us. And so our response then to God's gracious gospel in the new covenant is to do what? It is to profess publicly our faith and our allegiance in Jesus Christ as Lord, and we do so in the waters of baptism. Baptism doesn't make us a Christian, but if I am a Christian and I am confessing Christ as Lord, then I can publicly say I am united to Jesus Christ. All the benefits that he won for me, I share in those benefits, and now I am identified with him as a follower of Christ. And that, having been baptized, is to be followed by formally entering into a covenant relationship with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ through membership in a local church. So that a church covenant is a formal expression of one's commitment to obey what the scriptures command and to live out the gospel in fellowship with those who formally identify themselves as followers of Jesus Christ. Now we live in a society, and I'm very much aware of this, that is very uninterested in making commitment. We live in a culture that devalues commitment and accountability, I would say. And this world, this kind of worldly outlook has seeped into the kind of thinking of Jesus' disciples in today's world, and it, it sort of comes up in this idea of hesitancy to commit oneself to a local church. Years ago, Josh Harris wrote a book that had a clever title in which he, the title was called Stop Dating the Church because he's observed a lot of young adult men who would date all these young ladies and they would never marry them. They don't ever want to commit. They just want to hang out with these people, enjoy their company, but they move on with their own life. And so he sees the same tendency in the spiritual realm. And so he cautioned against an all too frequent pattern that he had observed among many people who are merely attenders at church, people who never formally commit to church membership. And so they would be a person who claims to be a Christian but they still retain this idea of a me-centered way of relating to the local expression of Christ's body. And so they're always saying, what can church offer me? What's it got for me here? And so they would see nothing wrong with politely keeping their distance. Don't want to get overly involved here. Don't want to get overly too close to anybody here. And, and so uh, he used the analogy of people who avoid this kind of uh, formal uh, commitment to the local church, and he calls them church daters. You know, I'm just going to just here for a period of time, and then I'll just move along. If there's something I don't like about this place, I'll go somewhere else, and we'll move on to that church. If I don't like something there, I'll move on somewhere else. They enjoy the benefits that they can have, but they don't want to really invest themselves. You see, instead of commitment to Christ and other believers, a perpetual non-member entertains really a consumer attitude, an attitude that quickly finds fault with the church they're in. They'll go somewhere else. They'll find fault with that church. They're always hunting for something better. And so I would just, again, ask the question again to those of us who are here today. Has your heart been gripped by God's gracious dealings with you to the point where you have repented of your sin? You have transferred your trust to Jesus Christ, you've received the gracious gift of eternal life, 
And then at that point, have you brought forth the fruit in keeping with repentance by publicly professing of your faith in Christ, identifying yourself as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ through baptism, and then entering into the church, a church's covenant of membership? Obviously, there's a big difference between dating a church and entering into a formal commitment by way of agreeing to a church covenant. And some people, of course, have no problem adhering to certain biblical standards. So I agree to certain things. I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Or yes, I'll pursue that in my life. But there are other areas of their life they don't want to deal with. And so they, they are unwilling to let anyone speak into those areas of their life. And they say, well, if you're going to start getting in too personal with me, I'm on to something else. Whereas a church covenant says what? We've agreed to be people who are going to love each other and follow what the scriptures are teaching to obey what Christ has commanded us. And we therefore commit to that kind of process where we work together on these things for the glory of Christ until we all reach maturity and find broad, balanced application of Scripture to our lives. Now, I can hear some of you probably saying in your minds, wait a minute. Jesus never talked about church covenants. Jesus never talked about church membership. Show me the verse. Come on. Well, let me remind you. Matthew 18, one of the few passages that Jesus did use the term church. And he described what happens when his disciples, he's assuming there, have identified themselves with a local church. Because what he says in the text in Matthew 18 is he deals with the idea of sin in somebody's life and the idea of confronting that person and the different steps we take to try to deal with sin, unrepentant sin, the life of a person who claims to be a follower of Christ. The last step of this restorative process of love, which comes out in discipline, church discipline, is excommunication. The idea of treating them as an unbeliever. Well, the fact is, how can you do that unless it's clear as to who is one among you and who isn't one among you? He's assuming that you have identified yourself as one of the body of Christ in a particular locality. Same thing as Paul similarly taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So, when we think about Jesus laying down his life for his bride, when we think about Christ and the church entering into a covenant with Christ, their Savior, think about Christ promising his undying love, his devotion to his church. If we're going to say, well, I claim and receive the benefits of that kind of grace shown to me in Christ, is it too much to ask his followers to, to join Christ in making a formal commitment to love to serve and support the members of a local expression of his body. In a sense, that's what we do every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, isn't it? In a sense, we're saying, yes, we are part of this body of Christ. And therefore, because of Christ and his devotion to his body, therefore, I commit myself to this body of believers as we live out our life of commitment to Christ together, celebrating his grace. Well, I made a long point of that one, but let's move on to point number two. Some of you are members and you're saying, okay, move on. The second interesting response here is found as we continue through the text. If you'll notice in verse 30, they begin to talk about not giving our daughters to the peoples of the land or taking their daughters for our sons. I would call this the second component of 
clear outward repentance in the lives of these people is they are pursuing a life of separation. A life of separation. They're renewing their commitment to conform their lives into this idea of the, the covenant, of Mosaic covenant. But they're specifically looking at the implications of the marriage relationships. Now, in order to understand what they're talking about, the taking of these daughters and the giving of these women to this man, whatever, Deuteronomy chapter 7, God made it very clear that he wanted his chosen people to not take to themselves wives of foreign nations and foreign peoples. Now, it was a common practice in that era that in order to make peace with another uh, nation or another uh, tribe, if you will, another group of people over here who are different than yours, you would oftentimes, politically speaking, you go and you say, okay, one of you give us a, your daughter, we'll, we'll marry somebody in our, our clan here, and so we'll have a strong bond together that we're going to trust and work together with each other, and therefore there'll be some political peace made here. Um, and God had prohibited that kind of intermarriage among pagan peoples, not because he's out of some sort of racial snobbery, not because of prejudice of people who are different than the people of God, but for religious reasons, for spiritual reasons, because of holiness concerns. You see, the overall effect of intermarriage resulted in, eventually, God's people beginning to adopt the practices of the people who they were marrying and becoming a part of them, so that, they, so that their practices and their idolatry became the practices of the people of God. And so God says, listen, having entered into a covenant relationship with me at Sinai, and that, that, that covenant includes land, land that you're being given now as a result of this covenant. He says the idea of intermarriage not only is going to be spiritually corrosive, it also is going to ruin this whole idea of the land that now belongs as a part of this covenant. It just makes it all get very messy. And so in Nehemiah's day, the outward fruit of their genuine repentance of showing that their hearts were gripped by grace as they began to say, you know, we got to do something about this. We cannot keep this practice of intermarrying with these pagan nations and look and compromising the things that God has clearly set forth. All right, let's move forward out of that setting into our setting. When God deals with us in grace in the new covenant, we don't face the idea of curses. We don't face this idea of loss of land, so we don't have those same issues that they had. But we're taught that marriage is a portrait of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. And if a man and his wife are not united in the worship of God, how can this marriage then reflect the relationship between God and his people? So in the New Testament, we find the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You might want to look that up. It's a passage that's all about marriage. Paul is answering questions about, oh, what about this? What about this? What about that? What about this issue regarding marriage? And so he's trying to take the gospel and how it is now beginning to affect people's lives, and he is applying it to the principles of the new covenant and marriage. 1 Corinthians 7.39, Paul assures that widows who are believers, they are free to remarry. Their husband has died. He said, you may remarry, but you remarry only in the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Only in the Lord. You're not free to remarry someone who's not a committed follower of Jesus Christ. She is free only to marry a fellow Christian. And there's another helpful passage if you want to read further on that is 2 Corinthians 6. Uh, there's a number of verses where Paul describes it's inappropriate for a Christian who's a follower of Christ 
to enter into some sort of um, continuous practice of something that you may have been involved in in your former idolatrous practice or some kind of false religion. You shouldn't be carried that forward into your current life and you shouldn't be involved in some ongoing relationship uh, that would also similarly put you into the idea of being spiritually bonded with unbelievers. He's thinking particularly, I think, here of marriage. So what's the point? This is not just merely a mandate we need to avoid, the idea of marrying unbelievers. The wider implication is if our hearts are truly gripped by grace, then it's going to be seen, it's going to be manifested in how we live out our life within our family. It affects our family life. And what that means is hearts that are gripped by grace is going to affect how truly repentant in my heart toward God, I don't want to dishonor Him in how I live my life, therefore it's going to affect how I relate to my wife, how she relates to me. And then if I give my wife the cold treatment or I'm not speaking to her or, or I give her a, a, a really nasty attitude in speaking to her in, in a way that clearly uh, is showing annoyance with her and I'm not being patient with her or I'm whatever it is, then once I've been made aware of that and she comes back to me and says, I don't understand why you're speaking to me like that, then it's going to affect the way in which I am willing to say I'm wrong. Please forgive me. A true repentant heart that is amazed by grace is a heart that's not going to defend what I do that is sinning against the person with whom I'm in bonds of marriage. Same thing is true with what? Moms and dads, the way we relate to our kids, the way our kids relate to mom and dad. The grace of Christ is going to affect the dynamics of those relationships. Even with siblings, how they relate to each other. It's amazing how the grace of God, if it's sown in our heart and I'm becoming aware of how God is so patient with me and so forgiving toward me in all the areas I fail, how much more is it important that I become a person who's willing to extend forgiveness, ask forgiveness as needed, and willing to extend to members of my family that kind of forgiveness when they repent? I would also suggest to you, as I've said, I think, in last week's sermon, that the more my heart is gripped by grace, the more I'm going to embrace the privilege and opportunity to pray for my family. I'm going to pray for my parents. I'm going to pray for my kids. I'm going to pray for my spouse. I'm going to pray for the people in my family. Grace points us to a Savior who showed us what love really involves, humbling ourselves as we serve and lay down our lives to other people. The more I'm amazed by that, Philippians chapter 2, the more I say, boy, Lord, give me that attitude, give me that mindset, show me what grace looks like in my life as I thank you for your grace you show to me. Well, much more we could say about that. That's some of you to think through how that is worked out in your own family life. There's a third point here, real quickly here, verses 31 to 39. I don't want to take the complete time to read all of them uh, because they are, um, but anyway, thirdly, there's a passion for God-honoring financial standards. God-honoring financial standards. Verse 31 starts off, As for the peoples of the land who bring wares of any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day, and we will forgo the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Exaction means we will collect every debt that's owed to us no matter what. We will squash these people until we get every last cent they owe us. And what they're saying is, um, 
they're not going to pursue that anymore. They've been doing that for a while. And then verse 32, they go into a positive thing where they say, we're going to place ourselves on an obligation to contribute now a shekel uh, for the service of the house of our God. And they talk about all the things now they're going to do to try to contribute to the temple worship going on among the people of God. This is what grace does. Grace begins to affect the way in which you find yourself dishonoring God. It becomes more evident to you. And you become aware of how you admit that greed so easily can take over your heart. I had no idea that the Sunday school class in the previous hour, which was a helpful and a very biblically uh, appropriate lesson on greed, ties right in here with what I was going to say today. Had no idea of that. But if you look at verse 31, they're admitting that, listen, we were conducting business trying to make money trying to sell things on the day that God said was a day to be set aside, a day of rest, a day which you're to take a break for those things and realize how good God has been and celebrate His provision for you. And know they're out there trying to make as much money as they possibly can, and they're also trying to collect every debt, even from people who can't afford it, who clearly are unable to repay that debt. He says, The repentant hearts began to uproot the greed. They became more compassionate toward those who were truly poor among them. And then in verses 32 to 39, they realized the temple now has been rebuilt. We got the wall around the city. And they're saying, now, this, this worship center needs to be financed. They saw it as a privilege to invest in the resources that God had blessed them with over the various harvest seasons and say, we're going to help participate in this and show that this is something we want to see happen here among us. We willingly are going to do this. Well, what's the context here in the New Covenant? When grace grips our hearts, we find dramatic changes in our attitudes toward what? Toward money. Toward the purpose of money, toward the use of money, toward what we are going to use our money for and how we use our money. Instead of trying to gain wealth by cutting corners, by taking advantage of people, by being primarily oriented toward being selfish, and I think in this situation, if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, Paul has to talk about the fact that, no, we're not going to steal anymore. That's not the way to, to advance yourself and to gain additional resources. It's not to steal or to not pay someone what they're worth in terms of their own employment and their own wages. We're going to provide for ourselves and for our family in a God-honoring way. We're going to work hard and do it the way which is appropriate. We're not going to kind of cut corners. And, and when we have money and resources that we've earned that way, we're going to realize it's not just for our own consumption, but he says in Ephesians 4.28 that we might have something to share with other people who are in need, who cannot provide for themselves. They, are not, they don't have as many advantages and opportunities as we have had. It's interesting how money becomes dethroned when Christ is on the throne of our hearts. And greed will give way to grace-filled giving. You say, oh, come on, show me some examples. All right, how about Zacchaeus? A man of short stature, a man who was not impressive in terms of what he looked like. So what did he do? He tried to compensate for his perhaps lack of physical impressive appearance. And he says, I'm going to become a rich person and people will respect me then because I will have great wealth. And so he invests himself in this whole lifelong of ripping people off, having this very shady business he's involved in, and, and he's known to be a very dishonest person. Everybody hates him, but he's quite wealthy. When he comes to faith in Christ, he receives the grace that Christ extends to him in the gospel. What does he do? 
He says, Jesus, my heart is so gripped by the gospel, I'm going to give restitution to all these people. I'm going to refund money if people are ripped off. Now, did he have to do that? No. But that's what grace brought him to want to do in order to honor the one who had showed him grace. I read recently that during the revival in Ulster <clears throat> in the 1920s, there were many, many people made their living working in the shipyards. And so these people were hardworking people. And when the grace of God began to work in among these people, the Spirit of God was moving, people were getting their hearts right with God, and they're being gripped by the grace of the gospel. So many people at that point, voluntarily, on their own, began to be convicted and realized that they had stolen so many tools over the years. And that those tools, had, tools sorry, had, had made their way into their storage sheds. So they began to bring them back. Not just a few. So many of the people who are now getting themselves right with God, they began to bring these tools back. So many were brought back that they had to build additional storage places to put all the stolen tools that were now being brought back and said, I did this, it was wrong, I'm going to make it right. I remember when I was in when, right out of college, I was meditating on the idea of repentance one day, and it brought to my mind a clear incident in which I, as a student helper, student assistant, I had an on-campus job in which I would help a particular faculty member and he would often ask me to go make copies. Uh, he gave me a, a particular uh, plastic, like a credit card, that I could use to make copies on the copying machine. And he would give me tons of stuff to make copies for him as part of a job he wanted to do, and I would get paid for it. So I would do that. And once I learned, as I was about ready to graduate, that I was going to be a youth minister of a church uh, in Asheville, North Carolina, I began to take resources in the library, and I'd start copying them using his key to make copies of these things so I'd have ideas of what to do when I got out. They didn't have the internet, didn't have any things you could just find stuff. So, and, and so it was wrong. I was stealing. And the Lord convicted me of that years later. And I remember writing out a check. I, don't remember, I think it was like $40. It was way more than what it was probably was what I ever used. Uh, but I didn't know how much it was, it was worth. And so I just said, I'm making this right. And I remember just thinking to myself, man, that feels good to do that because that's been bothering me all the time I did it. I knew it was wrong. And I didn't have a problem making it right. Nobody made me do it. Nobody would have known that I did it. But I did it because I was amazed at how gracious God had been to me. And so I hope that as we continue to think about God's grace, that many of us who have already seen the evidence of His grace shown to us in so many ways, your heart will be glad and generous in your giving. Many of you have voluntarily, weekly, proportionately giving to the work of the Lord. To, to people like Nancy Davis, who for years and years and years have been laboring, living on a very low salary, a person who has just devoted themselves to serving Christ, what a joy it is to give and be a part of such a thing. That's where the real wealth is anyway, is investing in those things. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that today you would help us not to put the emphasis on what we do, but Lord, our emphasis walking away from this text is on you and the graciousness of your dealings with us in Christ in the gospel. Lord, I pray that the grace of Christ will be so powerful in its effect upon all of our hearts 
that we will be a people who are very much open to being repentant and very much open to taking specific steps in our lives to bring our lives back into conformity with what your grace really is leading us to do, what Christ would want us to do, and that we would do it so, Lord, not in order to, to, to get things better for our lives, not to, to lead to self-fulfillment, not to impress anybody else, but, Lord, as a fruit of having a heart that is so amazed at the kind of acceptance we've found in Christ, the kind of forgiveness, the kind of again and again and again, Grace shown to us, we pray that you would, Lord, teach us to step forward, to make the commitment we need to make, to not sit on the sidelines. Help us, Lord, in our relationships, and our families, to be led by the Spirit, to, to extend and to offer forgiveness to those where it's appropriate. And Lord, I pray also for you to help Replace any kind of greed in our hearts with a sense of joyous giving and generosity and a kind of heart attitude that just loves and delights cheerfully to give to you and to your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.